James chapter 4, and this morning we're just going to really be looking at one verse, verse 17, but I'll read, begin reading, I'll just read the entire chapter of James uh, chapter 4. So listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from, uh, from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it in your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously because he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we, we do praise you and thank you for your word. We know that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this passage this morning, we pray that your spirit would be active uh, in our hearts, giving us insight uh, as your word goes forth uh, and helping us to understand, to apply this truth, uh, that we might be uh, faithful workers uh, for your glory and honor. And so we just pray now, Lord, for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to the end of James chapter 4, he closes here with what amounts to really just a summary of everything that's come before it. And it, again, it's that word, therefore, uh, at the beginning of verse 17 is what makes this connection. And it applies to not just the immediate context, but also the broader context of what has come before it. Now, immediately before this, as we considered last time, that James challenged the idea of practical atheism. That is, living your life without regard to God. 
And he did this by exhorting his readers to submit even such a simple everyday thing like making plans to the Lord and acknowledging God's sovereignty over all things and also their own humble reliance upon him to lead and guide them in life. Now certainly a common question many Christians would ask then is, what is God's will for my life? And this, of course, can be a very sincere inquiry, a sincere question that believers ask uh, to seek wisdom about what to do in a particular situation as they truly are uncertain. But it can also, at times, be simply an excuse to delay or altogether avoid doing what ought to be done. And so we say things like, well, I'm praying about it, or I'm waiting on the Lord to give me direction. Again, these are things that are good and right. But there may be times when we already know in our hearts what the Lord would have us to do. And we're still praying and waiting for God and looking for His guidance. You see, when we do that, what we're really saying is, As we're praying, we're praying and waiting for God to confirm that He finally sees things my way rather than being conformed to His way and His plan and His will. Well, clearly this isn't submitting our plans to the Lord, but it's seeking to impose our plans on the Lord. But as James has emphasized this here in verse 17, there really is no excuse for avoiding or delaying what we know God has called us to do. We need to just do it. Otherwise, we're sinning against God. Now James begins, To him who knows to do good, or some translations may have, who knows to do the right thing. And the implication here, of course, is that we know the good and the right thing to do. That is, we know what God's will is. Well, how do we know this? Well, because God has revealed His will to us. Now, even here, we need to make an important clarification. When we say God has revealed His will to us, this doesn't mean that God has revealed to us everything that He knows or everything that He's planned and purposed. No, God is infinite and we're finite, limited creatures. We can't possibly know all that God knows. Our knowledge, even our redeemed knowledge, is limited by our creatureliness. And so there are many things that God, because He's God, keeps to Himself. For example, when we think about God's eternal plan and purpose, or the reason why God does what He does in the working out of His plan, that's often a common question that we might have. God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Why is this happening? Well, these things are often hidden from us. See, God, remember from Isaiah 40, that God has declared the end from the beginning of all things. And so unless God reveals it to us, we often don't know the end until it has already come and gone. And we can look back and we see, ah, okay, we can see the hand of the Lord moving. And perhaps you've had uh, times in your life where you've been able to do that. Uncertain about a particular uh, trial or situation that you went through, but then looking back, 
you can see God's plan and purpose in it. But going through it, you couldn't see. And it was just that uh, it's at those times that we just need to trust in the Lord. That He has a plan and that He's truly working it out. So that secret will of God belongs to God alone. And we find this distinction between the secret and the revealed will of God. For example, in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of His law. And so there's the distinction. There's the secret things. They belong to God. But He has revealed things. Well, these things that are revealed belong to us, so that we might do what he calls us to do. And so when we're talking about knowing the good and right thing to do, we're not talking about knowing God's secret eternal will, but only what he graciously has revealed to us. And the next question is, how has God revealed his will to us so that we might obey and preserve it? Where can we find the revealed will of God? Well, we find it in his word, in the Bible, in the moral law that he's given to us. You see, it's in God's Word that He reveals to us how we might do His will and glorify and enjoy Him in our lives. In Psalm 105, or 119, verse 105, the psalmist sings, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and to a light to my path. And so as we journey throughout our lives, God has revealed to us in His Word how we can do that in a way that truly glorifies Him. So when we want to know God's will, we must look to His Holy Word. We need to read it. We need to be guided by it. It's given to us as the Apostle Paul declares in 2 Timothy, uh, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is, the Word of God equips us for every good work that the Lord would call us to do. Now, some might object here. But what if someone doesn't have access to the Word of God? Right? What if they don't have a copy of the Bible? How will they know God's will? How will they know what God expects of them? Don't they then have a valid excuse for not doing God's will if they don't know it? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses this very issue. And he answers this objection in, in Romans, uh, in the book of Romans, with a resounding no. They have no excuse. They have no excuse because although they may not have the law of God in a, in a written form like we do in, in the Bible, they do have the law of God, but it's written on their hearts. See, that's part of the being created in the image of God is that he wrote his law upon the hearts of all mankind. And Paul identifies this again in Romans 2 as as the conscience. Romans 2 verse 14, Paul says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their, uh, their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. 
And we know everyone has a conscience. Now it's true, they may uh, come across people who, who their conscience is drastically seared, but everyone has a conscience. And ultimately, deep down, at least at one time or another, everyone knew what was right and wrong in God's sight because of this law of God written in their hearts. But the problem, as Paul explained in Romans 1, is that sinful mankind actively suppresses that truth. It suppresses it and exchanges it for a lie so that they might then indulge in their sinfulness. It's there. The law of God is written on their hearts. It's there. Their conscience is there. But they suppress that truth out of their sinful rebellion. And so we know God's will. He's graciously revealed it to us in His Word, the Bible. And again, for those who don't have the Bible, they still have the witness of their conscience, the law of God written on their hearts, to lead and direct them to do what's right. And so clearly, all are without excuse. Because on some level, we all know. Now, if this is true for unbelievers, and indeed it is, well, how much more so for those who are in Christ? And so this really makes James' point here all the more dramatic. For James' readers who now have uh, his letter, they truly are not, they have no excuse. Right? They know the will of God. They know the right thing to do because God has now revealed it to them in many ways and even now more specifically and clearly through James' letter to them. And if they know what is good... Well, friends, how much more so ought we to know what is good and right since we've been studying now this very same letter over the past uh, several months and we have the Word of God in our own language, in our own tone that we can read it and we can understand it. And of course, we even have, again, the consciences that have been renewed and redeemed in Christ. And so, so we, those that gathered here, we have no excuse. We know the will of God. But what is it? What is it that we know? What are the good things that we know to do? Well, here's where that therefore comes in. As James points us back to all that he's instructed in his letter. We know the good things to do because James has given it us clear instruction about what God expects of us. And so here's a quick summary about what we know. We know God expects us to live our lives in a way that's consistent with our profession of faith. That if we confess to be believers in Christ, then we must live our lives in conformity to the way Christ himself lived. We must be not only hearers of God's word, but we must also be doers. We know this. We've studied this. We also know that we must not discriminate or show uh, impartiality, but we should love our neighbor, all our neighbors, as ourselves. And we should treat them kindly with respect, and especially we should be mindful of those who are poor and needy. 
In James 3, James charged that we should tame our tongues. And, and again, we know that the tongue is an unruly evil and full of deadly poison. Right? Like a small spark in a, in a dry forest, the tongue can bring about great destruction. It can harm ourselves. It can harm those around us. It can harm our witness to Christ. We know these things. We know that we must guard our tongue and be careful what we say and in how we say it. We know that we're to endeavor to sow seeds of righteousness and peace, which will lead uh, to more righteousness, to the glory of God. We know that we need to forsake the wisdom of this world, driven by a bitter envy and jealousy uh, from our sin. It comes from our sin nature. And instead we need to seek the wisdom, which is from God, which is from above, that God graciously gives to those who call upon His name in faith. We know this. And especially here in chapter 4, where James has given us several quick charges that demonstrate what it means to do the good and the right thing. We must submit our whole lives to God. We must resist the devil and his temptations. In God's grace, we must draw near to God with a true repentant heart. We must humble ourselves before the Lord and put to death the idolatry of self and the desire to exalt ourselves above others and even above God. We must not speak evil of our brothers and sisters in Christ nor judge them unfairly without cause. We must show our love for Christ by loving one another and serving one another. And we must consider the Lord in making our plans, refraining from bold, arrogant declarations about power and control that we do not have. We know these things. And if you didn't know them before, because you came today... You certainly know them now. And if you still don't know and you still don't understand, well then you must pray with a true and sincere heart, seeking the wisdom of God, seeking His mercy and grace, seeking His forgiveness for your lack of understanding and unbelief. Beloved of God, we know all this. And yet the critical question we need to consider now is, Are you doing it? Are you doing what you know to be good and right in God's sight? Are you doing His will for His glory? Indeed, examine your own hearts. Are you living the way Christ has called you to live? If you aren't, well then you need to know that you're sinning against God. As James continues here, verse 17, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. The Westminster Shorty Catechism question and answer 14 asks, what is sin? And it defines sin this way, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And we see here that there are two ways in which we sin. What we most commonly think of sin is a transgression of the law of God. That is, we actively do something that God has clearly forbidden in His law. And this is sometimes called a a sin of commission. 
right? Because it's a sin that you act- actively do and that you actively commit. And so think, for example, in the Ten Commandments, the, all the thou shalt not commandments. Right? Thou shalt not have any God but the one true living God. Thou shalt not make an idol and worship in a way that God hasn't commanded, uh, nor take the name of the Lord thy your God in vain. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, lie, or covet. Again, God is pretty clear what we shouldn't do. But you see, if you do what God forbids and transgress His law, well then you're sinning. And again, it's easy to identify this kind of sin because you're actually doing something. Now unfortunately, we often restrict our understanding of sin to just this type, right? Just these sins of commission, the things that we actively do against God's law. But as the Catechism notes as well, we also sin against God when we lack conformity to God's law. That is, when we don't do what God has called us to do, we're sinning. And this is what James is speaking of here. You know what to do, but you don't do it? Well, that is sin. And this kind of sin is referred to as a sin of omission. Right? You omit or you don't do what God has commanded you to do. Now, it's a, it's a passive form of sin, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's any less offensive to God. Not at all. But it's passive in the sense that you're not doing anything. And by not doing anything, you're sinning. Because there's things that God wants you to do and commands you to do. And so when we consider what the Spirit of God through James has charged us to do, if we aren't doing these things, then we're sinning against God. If you aren't taming your tongue, if you aren't loving your neighbor, if you aren't submitting your lies to God, then you're sinning against Him. Now again, some may argue, but I don't know. I didn't know I was supposed to do these things. Well, certainly that's possible. But again, since the law of God is written on our hearts, and our conscience is a witness to this, there really is no excuse for ignorance. It's still sin, for which you must give an account to God on the last great day. But here's the real kicker. You see, you, all here... You do know. You know because God has made it very clear in His Word, and especially in this letter that James has written as we've been studying it. And so the point that James is making here to his readers, and again, to us as well, is that we clearly have no excuse. If we were unaware of these commands before, well, we're certainly not unaware of them now. Because James has enlightened them uh, to us, to our responsibility before God. Not only as God's creatures, but especially those who have been born again in Christ Jesus. If you didn't want to know these things, you shouldn't have come today. But you're here, and you know them. You're doubly, triply, quadruply, exponentially, without excuse. 
If then you know what Christ has called you to do, but don't do it, you show contempt for God by disregarding His commands. And what happens when you do that? Well, you exalt yourself above God's law and even above God Himself. And so you see, once again, it comes back to the idolatry of self. The sinful pride of our hearts that would foolishly boast and exalt itself above God and above His commands. Beloved of God, this is a most serious matter. So what's the solution then? Well, it's quite simple. You know what the good things to do are? Just do it. Do the good and the right things. Do what God commands you to do. Live the way Christ has called you to live. Just do it. Don't try to come up with excuses about what you knew or didn't know, because there aren't any. You know what's right. God has clearly revealed it in His Word, so go and do it to the glory of God. James has challenged on this very point earlier uh, in his letter back in chapter 1. He says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Friends, don't deceive yourselves. Receive the truth of the word which has been implanted and set forth by the Spirit of God. Turn away from your sin. Humble yourselves before God and do the right thing. Live your lives the way the one who's called you and suffered and died on the cross for you. Live the way that He wants you to live. Just do it. But there's a problem, isn't there? It's hard. It's a challenge to do what we know is good and right, isn't it? It's certainly much easier to say, I'm going to do it, than to actually do it. Well, why is that? Well, it's because of the remnant of the sin nature that remains in us. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this great struggle in Romans chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, that even with a sincere desire to do what's right in God's sight, we often struggle and we fail miserably to do what He's called us to do. Paul says in Romans 7, verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Paul just, he wants to just do it. But it's that remnant of the sin nature in him that prevents him, or at least slows progress. It's that idolatry of self and and the sinful flesh at war within us that the very least slows our progress, if not preventing us altogether from doing what God has called us to do. But it gets worse. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, verse 15, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And so how can we be holy 
and make progress in our sanctification? How can we do the good and the right things if we're constantly battling against this remnant of the sin nature in us and we're battling against the temptations of the evil one? How can we become holy? It gets even worse. You see, because not only are we called to be holy... But Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount just how holy we must be. Matthew 5, verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect. Just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We're doomed. How can we ever be perfect? We can, at least not in this life. Now some, again, might protest at this point, and they say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. How can God, or how can we do what God calls us to do when, when God knows and we know that we can't do it? God calls us to be perfect. God knows we can't be perfect. We know we can't be perfect. It'd be like an endless goose chase. And, it, and, it, and worst of all, it doesn't seem fair that God would ask us to do something that's clearly impossible for us to do. And so how can He expect perfection out of imperfect creatures? And that's a big dilemma. A lot of people struggle with that very question. But beloved of God, do not despair. You see, because it's, it's for this very reason that we have the great blessing of the gospel. The good news of what Jesus accomplished for us. Because the gospel reveals to us that it was Jesus Christ, God's own beloved Son, that He has accomplished this perfection for us. And that His perfect obedience to the Father, even to the point of the painful and shameful death of the cross, and His unspotted righteousness is applied to us when we believe in Him for salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Righteousness we have is from Christ. So this is our our justification. Right? That we're justified, we're declared righteous by God. That when God looks upon those whom Christ has redeemed, He doesn't look upon our filthy rags of our of our sin and our imperfections and our daily struggles. No. He sees the perfect, pure righteousness of His beloved Son. Because we're clothed now in the righteous robes of Christ. And so when God looks upon us, He sees the glory of His righteousness of His beloved Son. Friends, this is the blessing of being in Christ Jesus. That we are justified by His grace through faith because of what Christ has done for us. Because we couldn't do it on our own. But just because we're clothed in the perfect, righteous robes of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we're then excused from from pursuing these commands, from pursuing holiness, pursuing righteousness, even pursuing perfection in this life. 
You see, there's that whole process of sanctification. We're justified now in Christ, but we still work toward sanctification. So that even though we struggle with sin each and every day, as Paul so wonderfully describes there in Romans 7, we must still strive to do what Christ has called us to do. We must live the way that He has called us to live in order to show our love and to show our gratitude to Him for what He has most graciously done for us and to be a witness to the glory of God to others. But even this, we can't do on our own. We can only do it by the greater grace God freely gives to us. It's only by resting in God's all-sufficient grace. Every day we must humbly rely upon that all-sufficient grace to strengthen us for the daily battle. So that every day we can pursue our sanctification in that day. Not worrying about tomorrow, because there's going to be enough trouble in today. But we rest in the grace that God has given to us today to do what He's called us to do today. And when we fail and stumble and fall into sin, as we surely will, we seek the Lord's grace and mercy for forgiveness of our sins. And we get up, we rest in His grace, and we get right back in this race. And so we can do what is good and right in God's sight. So we can truly bring glory, honor, and praise to His name in how we live our lives. Brothers and sisters, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you, do the good that you know to do and just do it to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just praise You and thank You for this reminder and this challenge that You give us this call to, to do good and to do what's right in Your sight. But we acknowledge that we can't do that outside of Your grace and Your mercy, outside of what Christ Jesus has accomplished for us. And we praise You and thank You, Lord, that you not only call us to be holy and perfect, but you have provided the very way in which we can attain that through Christ himself, your own beloved son whom you sent, who suffered and died on the cross for our sins, that we might have the forgiveness of sins, and that his perfect righteousness is now uh, given to us. And we're wrapped in his holy robes, because the robes that we wear are nothing but filthy rags. The robes of our own righteousness. But you cover all that with those glorious righteous robes of your Son so that you look upon us and you enable us and we can enter into your presence because we've been justified by faith through grace. And that we can be enabled each and every day as you continue to renew that grace for us to grow in our sanctification, to press on to the, to the goal that you have set before us. To strive to glorify your name in all that we do. And so we just pray, Father, that you would impress these truths upon each of our hearts. And that we would acknowledge that there is no excuse. Because you have revealed these things to us. But Father, there are many people around us.
who are in the dark, who are claiming to have excuses, even though they have no excuse. And yet we pray that you would help us to show them your truth, to show them the gospel, that they might be awakened to these things, and that they might come out of the darkness into your glorious light, to also do your word and to live for your glory, honor, and praise. And so we just pray, Father, that you would continue to bless these things upon us by your Spirit. Draw us all closer to yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.